Has the nonprofit industrial complex increased its grip on the environmental movement in the last five years? How does the COVID factor advance the green billionaire's role of solving climate change on their terms? Is it now too late to save the planet by reducing greenhouse gas emissions? Why is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change ignoring key factors when it comes to daunting realities? This week is Earth Week, and on the Global Research News Hour, we take an unfiltered view at the impacts of climate change and on how the current environmental movement are failing us. In our first half hour, our guest, environmental activist and investigative journalist Corey Morningstar, shares her thoughts about the increasing influence of the environmental NGOs and the billionaire foundations that finance them. Then in our second half hour, we have a chat with geologist and paleoclimate scientist Andrew Glickson about major trends in climate patterns recently that have raised his doubts about the future of humanity. On this week's program, Earth Day 2021, Hope Illusions and Daunting Realities. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of April 23rd, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. It is possible that the pseudo-exosomes that are the mRNA contents would be perfect for supplying the sperm with mRNA for the spike protein. So potentially a vaccinated woman who gets pregnant with an embryo that can, via the sperm's plasmids, synthesize the spike protein according to the instructions in the vaccine, would have an immune capacity to attack that embryo because of the foreign protein it displays on its cells. This then would cause a miscarriage. If there were truly a public health authority in the U.S., the criminals that are recommending this would be put in prison for reprehensible criminal negligence for the unnecessary damages they are causing to pregnant women and the deaths of their unborn children. Even among non-pregnant women, side effects hinting at reproductive side effects are being reported, such as heavier-than-normal menstrual flow, uterine bleeding, or restarting their period for the first time in years. That comes from the article, Pregnant Women Should Not Get a COVID Vaccine, by Dr. Joseph Mercola, posted April 21st, originally posted at the Mercola website. Although the EMA said the reported combination of blood clots and low blood platelets is very rare, and the overall benefits of J&J's COVID-19 vaccine Janssen in preventing COVID-19 outweighs the risks of side effects, the EMA has decided to affix a safety warning to the J&J jab, a warning that EMA neglected 
to impose on the AstraZeneca jab that is so critical to the continent's vaccination program. The EMA's safety committee, known as PRAC, determined that blood clots caused by the vaccine occurred mostly at unusual sites such as in veins in the brain or cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, CVST, and the abdomen or splanchnic vein thrombosis, as well as in the arteries. They're often accompanied with low levels of blood platelets and sometimes bleeding. The cases reviewed were very similar to the cases that occurred with the COVID-19 vaccine developed by AstraZeneca Vaxzevria, the committee said. Health professionals and people who will receive the vaccine, quote, should be aware of the possibility of very rare cases of blood clots combined with low levels of blood platelets occurring within three weeks of vaccination, the committee added. That comes from the article, European Drug Regulator Slaps Safety Warning on J&J Jab Due to Blood Clot Links. Posted April 21st, originally published at Zero Hedge. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and President Joe Biden endlessly accuse Beijing of human rights violations against the Uyghur minority in China's Xinjiang region, cracking down on so-called democracy activists in Hong Kong, threats against Taiwan, and cyber attacks against the U.S. and its allies. Blinken emphasized in March that these supposed actions by China, quote, threaten the rules-based order that maintains global stability. That's why they're not merely internal matters and why we feel an obligation to raise these issues, unquote. But it is this very emphasis on a rules-based order that highlights the U.S. contradictory behavior, considering its military invasions and interventions outside of international law as well as endless sanctions and embargoes against Russia, Syria, and Venezuela, to name but a very few countries. Rather, the so-called rules-based order is a U.S.-led liberal order, the very thing that China is beginning to resist by engaging in so-called wolf-warrior diplomacy and promoting the idea that the world wants justice and not hegemony, as Xi said. That comes from the article, Chinese President Highlights the World Wants Justice and Not Hegemony, by Paul Antonopoulos, posted April 20th, originally published at Infobricks. The lockdowners are now dealing with the huge problem of Texas. It has been fully open with no restrictions for six weeks. Cases and deaths fell dramatically in the same period. Fauci has no answer. Or compare closed California with open Florida. Similar death rates. That comes from the article, The Lockdown Paradigm is Collapsing, by Jeffrey A. Tucker, posted April 21st, originally published at American Institute for Economic Research. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar.
April 22, 1970 was the very first day known as Earth Day, the day that called for citizens in America to galvanize and mobilize for environmental protection. By the time this show airs, Earth Day 2021 will have come and gone, but we thought we should mark a day for concern about the fate of the Earth by marking recognition of the unfortunate realities which plague the desire for protecting the Earth. Simply put, as time has gone by since 1970, we've seen efforts at stewardship being determined more and more by the wealthy elites, to the point where the large environmental NGOs have had their actions, even their very scripts, handed to them by the elite-funded foundations who finance them. Collectively, the non-profit industrial complex has made non-profits outside this giant, virtually silent and meaningless. Like any other industrial complex, the need for greed has manufactured illusions where actual solutions are sought by the earnest. We're going to take a look at this situation and how it has evolved over the last decade or so. Is profiteering snake created the, the profiteering snake created by green billionaires tightened its grip, or are alternatives visible just beyond the limits of our crafted consciousness? Joining me is someone who opened my eyes about five years ago to these factors. In fact, it was exactly five years ago since we had our first discussion. I'm talking about Corey Morningstar. She's been an environmental activist as well as an independent journalist and researcher. She's published at Counterpunch and Wrong Kind of Green, as well as her own site, theartofannihilation.com. She joins us from her home in London, Ontario. Thank you for joining us, Corey. It's always a treat to have you on the program. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah. Now, Corey, in the five years since you first came on as a guest, what would be your main take with regard to how the NPIC has fared and, and environmental act environmental activists in relation to it? Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, well, grassroots have not fared well. The nonprofit industrial complex has done a phenomenal job, um, basically trawling the globe and, um, you know, sort of trawling all the, all the groups and young, you know, young, young youth activists and everyone else into, into their um, massive high financed um, net. And I mean, it's just astonishing actually how, what's happened. Um, when you, when you go back for five years till today, this whole program of, um, basically changing everything and together has, you know, it's, it's actually almost complete. And right now what we see, um, during the, this, um, quote unquote pandemic, we've had, um, the ruling class in tandem with, um, corporate power, basically consolidating capital and um, like really, really crushing um, not only small root, small grassroots, but like all artists, um, small business, um, the arts community, like um, the informal sector, the global south, basically like this huge contraction of capital um, as they, you know, basically restructure the whole global economic system. And so there's um, a massive amount going on right now. They've really massively gained a huge amount of momentum over the past year. And um, the whole 
quote unquote great reset the whole global economy is really really well on the way um you know i'll just stop there yeah well i mean i know that uh, i mean these groups uh, avaz and purpose uh, and how they've taken control of internet conversations and i know we do a lot more on the internet now than we used to like say 10 years ago uh or so I mean, the whole social media phenomenon has been driven by these people. I mean, is is, is that a, a factor? Are they better marketeers? Oh, absolutely. Yes, like without the mobile and basically the mobile phone um, is, I mean, this is not the exact quote, but basically I, I've used it in my articles verbatim. It's the, you know, the conduit, the whole fourth industrial revolution runs through the mobile phone, the smartphone. And that's, if you go back, actually, um, now that you spoke of Avaz, if you go back to 2007, Rick and Patel, one of the co-founders of Avaz actually wrote a report for the Gates Foundation. And it was about, um, you know, the importance of getting the mobile phone and um, texting into the hands of basically everyone on earth with a particular um, targeting of the global south. And since that time, I mean, you can see what's happened. It's just become um, this massive phenomenon. And, And I mean, today you have... Um, corporations now who have a direct line to youth and children and the massive shift that I've seen happening um, especially this year is the targeting of youth and children it's become basically where um, almost all the resources and all the um, target is on the youth youth demographic and even children now and that's the World Economic Forum they created um, something called Uplink, which is in partnership with Salesforce, um, Deloitte, I believe Microsoft. There's that one. There's also the One Young World. There's Global Citizen, which is backed by um, Bill Gates and the World Bank. Um, they're 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 just coming out of the woodwork. Even Deloitte now ha- has just launched a new section targeting. Um, I'm not sure if it's like a pilot project. They've launched something I was looking at last week targeting children. So that's a whole, that's basically where all the energies are going now. And then um, this week, you also saw the WHO bring out um, Greta Thunberg again to promote the whole new thing called um, Youth Mobilize, which is to bring quote unquote vaccine equity to the global south. And that's um, Greta Thunberg donating money to COVAX and that that quote unquote movement to again, harness the children, what Avaz and Purpose called new power, right? Harnessing energy to get what you want. That is um, backed by Salesforce, which is Mark Benioff is the CEO and founder of Salesforce. And he's um, a World Economic Forum. Um, he serves as a board of trustee. He is the um, what do you call it? He's like the head of the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution in the United States. And those are um, proliferating across the globe as we speak. Um, so it's a huge rollout of the Great Reset, the Fourth Industrial Revolution. You can call it whatever you want, build back better, global green new deal. It's all essentially the same thing, which is re- the restructuring of capitalism to save, you know, um, 
the current power structures and the ruling class. And yeah, and like, I guess, in, like new developments seem to keep propping up. I mean, Extinction Rebellion and uh, this, uh, you know, like stuff like that. And, and they all seem to be constrained. But uh, like, what exactly seems to limit their, uh, their expansions? I mean, very maybe imaginative, but there are, I guess, certain restraints about what they will talk about and what will they will not talk about. I mean, could you come up with like an example or two of? of... Well, I mean, they were created as as um, they're an arm of capital, so that's how you have to see them at. That's why they're created. That's why they're financed. That's why they're financed by billionaires. They're basically like free. They're free labor, right? They're lobbying groups for um, for this quote unquote build back better quote unquote green clean economy it's nothing green it's nothing clean and i just wrote a pretty big series in the past few months um about based on that documentary the social dilemma and especially specifically the last section the second section um gets into the colon the recolonization of africa which again um that goes right back to the population again and then the last section in particular is all about um the data centers becoming this massive massive um climate um, what do you, you know, like it, it's just a massive polluting energy sucking, um, rollout is so vast. I mean, the data centers will just make aviation look like, look like, you know, prattle, like nothing. And that's, um, a talking point, which is left out of everything just as, just like nuclear and carbon capture storage net zero, which is actually, um, right now, huge um, energy is going to carbon markets again. All this is happening um, as people are hysterical over um, COVID, you know, which most people recover fully from, like it said, 99.77 infection fatality survival rate. So there's a lot of distraction happening. Um, you know, Extinction Rebellion, these groups, like I said, they are created and financed um, as a as an apparatus, as an arm of the machine, right? They serve a purpose and that is um, service in, of capital. So everything is, um, you know, like these things aren't green, right? Like right now with the green, global green new deal, I don't know what you call it, great reset. They're, they're all the same, it's all branding, marketing. Um, if, you, if you look at, for instance, um, mining.com, you can subscribe to to this website and i mean the money the this, this it's massive 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 growth right now of all the minerals and rare earth resources happening yeah it's kind of ironic you know yeah because you're going from oil and gas to lithium mining and cobalt and so on and so that's where you know even more mining than ever right yeah, and I mean, they're about to mine the oceans, you know, and who set that up on um, Mark Benioff, they, they set up an NGO for that, you know, it's um, framed as, oh, look at our, we love oceans, we're going to protect oceans, and then they set up a watchdog over the ocean mining, who finds that, Benioff, right, like it's a joke, and I mean, you have to dig in to see this because everything's delivered in sound bites. 
right? And everything's packaged to be holistic and beautiful and green and emotive. And it makes you feel, you know, secure and happy. And you, you know, and people want to believe this stuff. Last year, about this time, a new film was released and placed on YouTube. It was very expensive for sure. It was produced, directed, and, and written by Jeff Gibbs. And it was executive produced by Michael Moore, of all people. And it was critical of many of the talking points utilized by the 1% through their foundation-funded NGO. And it was critical of the relationship between the major environmentalists like McKibben and billionaires. And the green billionaires fight back, you know, after the, the film. So it was good to hear that kind of message, such as what you manufacture going out to a wider audience. And I, I'd like to know what you thought of the movie, uh, especially with Michael Moore's involvement. I mean, are we witnessing a direct a different turn away from the NPIC thinking, or is it the debut of another fake solution, a limited hangout of sorts? What are your thoughts? Um, Jeff did a great job in his documentary, and I actually um, know um, him, you know, I know Jeff quite well, and he labored over that for years and years and years and, you know, lived in... um, I believe like close to poverty levels to get that documentary done. So that was done, um, you know, rather than in the service of capital. I mean, that was done with the best of intentions and it's a really, really important film. Um, I think that opened up a lot of eyes to what, um, you know, what is his name? Um, The guy that did the film, Uh, I can't think of his name. Um, okay, um, what is his name? The guy that, um, Ozzy Zenner, Ozzy Zenner, Ozzy, is that right? Do you know him, Michael? Okay, well, anyway, um, that really, that really helped with a lot of, with the small handful of people that had been writing about that for for a long, long time, right? Like Derek Jensen, um, there's some anarchists within academia that were writing about that. There's there's a handful of people and that film was great. Um, I mean, that's the thing is after that film, everyone within, you know, the whole nonprofit industrial complex came out against it basically like they're you know quote unquote leaders and tried to um you know tried to criticize it but I mean the stand the film stands on its own and it's great um Michael Moore he you know obviously he had the clout and the money to get the film done um it's too bad that when I watched um question and answers on YouTube with Michael Moore and Jeff and Ozzy like he continually would in his answers redirect people back to Greta Thunberg back to AOC back to the Democratic Party right on Bernie Sanders and so that was pretty um you know ridiculous but the film in itself is great um you know what yeah we published on wrong kind of green and we just put sort of um an intro to it, just discussing a couple of concerns we had that we wanted to keep in mind for people about, um, you know, the whole population argument, because that whole population thing um, is always directed at the global south. And actually, it's largely inaccurate. The global population is actually 
massively declining in all places except for the global south. And that's why you have this huge interest um, by corporate power in um, especially Africa and India, you know, right on these youth populations. Um, so that's another aspect of the film people just have to be a little cautious of. Yeah, well, it certainly made a, a big impression. And uh, so I guess they're kind of starting to catch up with, with your, yourself. Uh, but uh, I, I wanted to, to bring up uh, maybe one more point uh, having to do with the role of COVID, because that helped realign governments and people with the climate campaign, uh, apparently. I mean, one would think it would take a backseat to healthcare situation or the economy. I mean, in the late 80s, People were really concerned about climate change, right? Then a recession hit in the early 90s and people forgot about it in favor of a good job or big vans that guzzle fossil fuels or whatever. But this time, when we're facing even a more dire situation than ever, we're going to jump on board with climate change, you know, get an electric car and and so on. Do you have any insights into why this would be happening now? I mean, is it just that we're more evolved than we were or is there something more going on here? Well, the whole COVID and climate is about to um, come together as one. I mean, that's going, COVID has been the catalyst pushed forward the whole um, rollout, the fourth industrial revolution during this time that everything's been shut down. They've been implementing um, um, telehealth as went from in the United States has went from 3% to it must be almost 100% by now. Um, learning has gone remote, like not just in Ontario and Canada and the States, but all over the world. All the fourth industrial revolution, um, automation, AI, everything's, um, you know, just blowing up. It, they're actually stunned and thrilled with the success of everything they've been wanting to push through. So COVID has been the catalyst for everything as well as the whole new vaccine boom, which will serve as sort of the bedrock of biotech going forward, the whole um, experimental vaccines on a whole on whole populations, right, um, with the MR, mRNA. So that's the bedrock of biotechnology going forward. And then, you know, that leads um, to all kinds of things, including like um, gene editing, which is the new eugenics. And so you've got... Um, I don't even know if I'm answering your questions, but right now what we're seeing is now where it's being, you know, Greta sort of disappeared for a little while and the climate thing sort of disappeared for a little while, but that's coming back full, full, um, you know, full, it's circling back um, and we're going to just see a culmination of the two and that's going to lead to the implementation finally of the New Deal for Nature which is the financialization of nature, um, monetization of all life, human capital, social capital. I mean, that's part of this huge contraction uh, of capital and this restructuring of the whole global economy. So it's all going to come together, um, you know, and again, like lots of media induced um, fear, hysteria, right? Like when Greta, if you remember Michael, I want you to panic, right? That was for the World Economic Forum. I want you to panic, the house is on fire, but their house was on fire, right? That is like capitalism was in trouble, right? And close to collapse. And this is like um, a desperate attempt to restructure and save, you know, basically the ruling class and the current um, structures, right? Current power structures. And so there's going to be a lot 
that will be happening this year, a lot of legislation passing through, um, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars. They're still looking at pensions to secure up to $100 trillion for infrastructure. Um, a lot of that will be spent in the global south, again, India, Africa, target areas um, for basically recreating, um, you know, um, Western Western type of, you know, quote unquote democracy, bringing that to different countries, um, children turning children into coders. Um, but yeah, climate and, and um, COVID are both being exploited and, and used to not protect the environment, not to protect health, but just they're both being used to maintain the system that's destroying biodiversity and destroying health, right? Destroying our all life on the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Corey Morningstar, it's, it's been a fascinating conversation. I've got to bring it to a close now, but I, I want to thank you for uh, being available for me and in times of uh, of climate calling, as it were. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Michael. Bye. Bye. We've been speaking with independent journalist and researcher Corey Morningstar. She joined us from London. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. The sixth great extinction of world species is not a threat we hope to avoid. It's happening right now. My next guest is a scientist who will acknowledge that there are few, if any, solutions to bring to the table which will sufficiently mitigate the increasing levels of greenhouse gases pushing our globe far beyond the sustainability level and launching us into a full inferno. Andrew Glickson is an earth and paleoclimate scientist He studied geology at the University of Jerusalem and graduated at the University of Western Australia in 1968. He's worked with the Climate Science Institute at Australian National University for decades. Since 2005, he studied the relations between climate and human evolution. Glickson has published almost 150 scientific papers and articles. His latest book from Springer Press is entitled The Event Horizon, Homo Prometheus and the Climate Catastrophe. He joined us from Canberra. I asked the scientist in the wake of a recent lockdown due to COVID if the reduced emissions of CO2 hinted at a possibility that a determined decision to reduce greenhouse gas emissions alone had any hope of backing us away from the brink of collapse. He didn't seem to think so. Well, in my view, reduction in emission, which of course everybody's talking about, is not enough. There are different views. Uh, I heard Michael Mann say that reduction in emission will be effective uh, within a short period. But how can you reduce 514 parts per million carbon dioxide plus methane plus nitrous oxide within a human or even civilization lifetime? Uh, These gases tend to be long-lived from my readings there are, there can be thousands and tens of thousands of years uh, residence, atmospheric residence time. So how can anyone say that reduction in emission can bring the level, the concentration of uh, carbon dioxide and the other gases, greenhouse gases, down 
within a short time. I don't know what's the basis for uh, this idea. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I, I suppose like there's also the amount of uh, uh, CO, not only the CO2, but also uh, any uh, particles that might shade against the sun. That might uh, that 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 there would be less of that over the course of two thousand twenty twenty, if I'm not mistaken. Does, does that reduction? Well, maybe not the CO two, but the the reduction of the uh, the, the different uh, solar radiation uh, particles. Did that have any impact? Well, I was not hundred percent clear of what you were saying or asking, Michael. But uh, you're talking about uh, long-lived particles. Yeah. Well, the carbon, the greenhouse gases, they are not really particles. They are gases. Uh, and the concentration of the gas is now uh, similar to that which existed on Earth uh, in the Miocene, which is about, well, it's uh, more than 20,000 years ago. Sorry, not 20,000, 20 million years ago. Uh, at that stage, temperatures on the Earth were somewhere between three degrees and four degrees. Uh, it was an entirely different uh, biosphere. And we are already committed to it based on the level of um, uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. To transfer to um, shift into Miocene climates within virtually not much longer than one century is a rate of global warming faster than anything uh, I could see in the geological record, uh, apart from the KT dinosaur extinction boundaries. This was initially even faster. But following uh, 65 million years ago, the rate of warming uh, at the PETM, which is the Paleocene-Eocene uh, transition, uh, was an order of magnitude less, less fast, slower than it is now. And the last glacial termination was um, um, even slower. So what we're looking at is not only the absolute uh, rise in uh, greenhouse gases and temperatures, we're looking at rates which, uh, to which uh, the biosphere is committed to mass extinction. Mm. Let's look into some of the, the research that you've done on, uh, on, on Greenland and on Antarctica as, as tipping points. I mean, much of your work revolves around the melting of the ice covering Greenland and Antarctica but not so much the, the melting of the ice covering the ocean at the North Pole. And I, I figure maybe you can lead us, you, you see how your, your, your work leads us to dramatic effects on the climate. I mean, could you help our listeners understand that distinction and, and what kind of climate, climatic tipping point is at stake there? Well, I have to clarify, I have not done original work, original field work in either Antarctic or Greenland. I've done quite a bit of reading about it. Okay. Uh, what is happening there is the uh, signal as to what's happening in the rest of uh, the Earth. Uh, for one thing, the boundaries between the um, 
polar ice sheets between the Arctic and Antarctic on the one hand and between more moderate uh, intermediate uh, latitudes, these boundaries are weakening, which means um, we see now fires in the Arctic and we see um, a freeze events, the so-called uh, beast from the east, freeze events in the northern latitudes. This signifies the weakening of the boundaries between um, the Arctic in this case and between higher latitudes. And weakening of an advance and migration of boundaries are now uh, actually observed and measured and taken from satellites and on the ground right around the world. This is very much a, a part and parcel of climate change, that the climate zones are migrating and changing. And uh, at the rate of, uh, from my reading, about 110 kilometers per decade. Um, I'm not sure whether this was what you were asking. Well, you you did mention that uh, the 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 melting of o over those land masses, it deposited a lot of uh, water in, into the nearby ocean, and, and that that did cause, uh, I guess, a, a, a cooling effect, right? Well, the ice melt from uh, both Greenland and Antarctic, but at the present, particularly Greenland. Uh, the ice melt, the cold water, are flowing into the oceans and uh, they already started to result in what is called stadial. Stadials are cold freeze events following peak temperatures and we see it right through the glacial interglacial cycles. Now we're seeing it at the present time, uh, south of Greenland and north of Antarctic and certain parts of Antarctic. Uh, now this means that uh, the IPCC projections, which are linear, essentially linear, might be uh, disturbed, disrupted by these secondary events. And secondary events might develop to major events. And this includes amplifying feedbacks, which means uh, as the word warms, it activates uh, a number of processes, for example, release of methane warming ocean water, which uh, can therefore absorb less carbon dioxide and, uh, and start a fires, extensive fires. The other um, consequence is the, um, the cooling of large regions of the oceans. There are the studies I just mentioned. So um, the IPCC rather linear trajectories is something to be questioned. Uh, progression over the next few decades and longer than this, at least in the view of some scientists, certainly my view, cannot be linear. They will be disrupted. And this has been modeled by a large group of scientists, climate scientists and paleoclimate scientists like James Hansen, for example. He has detailed the modeling and they keep working on it in the 2016 uh, paper. Now, the heating over the poles, the Arctic and the Antarctic zones are, are critical in that the temperature rises there faster 
than at the more temporal levels, if I'm not mistaken. Can you explain why that happens and, and why the jet stream starts behaving differently? It's the albedo effect of the ice sheets. The ice sheets originally and still now to some extent um, reflect uh, solar radiation. Uh, as uh, the surface of large ice sheets, or partly the surface of ice sheets in Greenland, and also in West Antarctic, especially, melt, then uh, infrared radiation, rather than uh, reflected into the atmosphere, is partly absorbed by the water, by the warming water. It is the albedo flip, it's called the albedo flip effect, which again Hansen has, uh, has been writing about. So, yeah, so you're, you're essentially talking, uh, I think, about amplifying factors in climate change I and mean, the albedo flip, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I mean, are, are there a few other uh, amplifying factors in climate change that uh, you know, are worth mentioning? Yes, indeed. Uh, to a large extent, uh, the warming of the oceans, uh, the extensive fires on the continents, the release and leakage of methane, uh, they are the effect of warming and they enhance the warming, they are amplifying. And the rate um, of um, global warming now, uh, or I should say the rate of carbon dioxide uh, release or concentration in the atmosphere is now, has been now for a number of years, somewhere between two and three parts per million per year. This is an order of magnitude or a very large factor higher than any geological events, including such which have caused mass extinction, which is like uh, in the uh, Paleocene Eocene. Uh, the biosphere is already suffering from such uh, transitions and uh, might not be able to survive in its present form anyway from continuation of such um, uh, rates of um, shift in uh, the state of the terrestrial climate. Hmm. Now, uh, going back, you, you mentioned the, the, the IPCC, the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Um, now, you know, in, in addition to uh, your other things like the, 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 I guess, linear assumptions of linearity, they, they also acknowledge or seldom acknowledge the role of methane gas produced by industry and, and, and held hostage in the northern tundra and the clathrates in the oceans, and, and what a fantastic difference that would make once released. Uh, I think it contains 80 times the ability to work as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. What is your explanation for the IPCC, which thoroughly goes through thousands of papers, uh, and on, on, on the recent greenhouse gas research, how, how do you explain their, their unwillingness to acknowledge these realities? Well, the individual peer review papers, and there are thousands of them, on which the IPCC reports are based, they are the best science we have. They are largely, largely okay. However, the summary for policymakers, that's something which uh, committees have uh, put together 
And you know the saying that no committee has ever written a symphony. Well, no committee has ever written a symphony. They have not, uh, the summary to policy makers, as far as I'm aware, did not include some of the world leading scientists. You take people such as Schellenhuber, uh, for example, and of course, Hansen and his group, and uh, take um, Michael Mann and many others, which to my knowledge have not been major uh, contributors or players to the IPCC. Instead, the committee and the quite large committees have assembled and synthesized the, um, the thousands of peer review papers to reach major conclusion and valid conclusion, this might not be the best way. In fact, because quite apart from the science, there have been, I believe there have been political uh, influences. Some people, and this includes scientists, are reluctant to alarm the public too much or frighten people too much. Now, this is very natural. I am always aware of it. You don't want to tell people how serious, in fact, how hopeless almost the situation has become over the last 30 or 40 years. It's something which most humans are reluctant to do. I'm reluctant to do that. I don't like to talk to my family and friends too much about what, to my knowledge anyway, which is far from perfect, of course. I'm only one person. Uh, I don't want to tell them. Children need to have hope. People need to have hope. And how do you tell them? You find yourself in the condition, in the position of medical doctors, of oncologists really, talking to patients and to the families of patients about the prognosis of what happens to, to the dear ones. Well, I really admire this uh, oncologists and doctors. Uh, it must be one of the hardest thing to do. Similar principle with climate science. It is one of the hardest thing to do because people expect and hope uh, scientists to give them good news. Uh, well, you know the story of uh, Cassandra, of course. Um, she was given the knowledge of the future by Zeus as a form of punishment for uh, rejecting him, rejecting Zeus. And people were, were forever running away from her, poor Cassandra. Well, climate scientists who are trying to convey the evidence and the prognosis and future trends and future consequences of what is happening right now, uh, they are not very happy people they're not very popular people, and a lot of people will just turn a deaf ear, run away from them. I have this experience. Dr. Glickson, uh, you've studied past collapse, collapses of species over the course of history and prehistory. Uh, they're called the Great Extinctions. Uh, there are five altogether, and, and we're currently going through the sixth extinction. Now, the cause being anthropocentric generally and anthropocentric climate change being a specific contributor, how does this current 
species extinction we're going through right now compare with the other extinctions in the past? Well, the largest extinction um, in the past, in the Cenozoic, was about 66 million years ago. A very large asteroid, you know, larger than 10 kilometers in size, has um, um, collided in Yucatan Peninsula and also one at the very same time in Siberia, or in Russia, rather, sorry. Uh, they have resulted in the clouding of the atmosphere to an extent that has um, the, the dust arising from the cratering by this asteroid have resulted in clouding of the atmosphere, which initially cooled the air severely. That's what's called the asteroid winter, and now we call it the nuclear winter, uh, which means a lot of plants over large parts of the earth, plants have uh, died. Plants need uh, solar radiation. Well, now we're looking at a different factor, but quite similar effects. Now, uh, until about 10 years ago, and more than that, I have been studying asteroid impacts in Australia and also elsewhere. And the way which I have arrived at uh, looking at climate change is to a large extent, uh, is reading about or looking at the record of asteroid impacts. There are important similarities as far as effects on the atmosphere are concerned. Now, having said that, I can't remember, oh, that's right, you were asking me about the magnitude scale of mass extinctions. Well, the biggest one, bigger one, which reached somewhere above 80% of uh, species or general, was the KT, uh, Cretaceous Tertiary extinction of some um, 65, 66 million years ago. Uh, but there were previous ones and there were somewhat smaller mass extinctions, uh, one at 55 million years ago. Uh, the rates of these mass extinctions, except, except for the KT one, was not as high as the rate of global warming now. And this from a paleoclimate point of view it, it scares the daylight out of me. Not everybody, paleoclimate scientists know about it, but this is not the kind of evidence or knowledge which is disseminated widely to the public and particularly the media. To me, the media is culpable by avoiding uh, the, report, the report of what are the consequences, most severe consequences of what is happening right now. Yes, well, as you, you mentioned, uh, the, the, this whole scenario, the, you know, the, the, the lockdowns and, and everything else, you, it forced, you forced upon us, uh, it doesn't leave us much cause for optimism about voluntary reductions of CO2 emissions, uh, bringing in from from the brink of bringing us from the brink of collapse is there a technology or, or any mechanism which grants you hope for for saving our species and and keeping the planet viable as a human planet uh, where, where does it lie what 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 could we possibly do in principle there exist but it has not been tested on the scale required uh, in principle, 
if humanity invested what it is investing in the development and production of nuclear weapons and other weapons, which is trillions, as you know, trillions of dollars. If humanity and the so-called leaders invested this uh, so-called defense budget into trying to protect and save life on Earth, perhaps it could have turned uh, global warming around, perhaps. Until it's done, tested and done, we will not know. But this is one way. The other way is what's called solar shielding. It's just for a, a limited duration, a transient period, they put enough uh, solar reflectors above the atmosphere, less solar radiation will reach the Earth. Again, it's a technology which will cost, well, billions or trillions. So in principle, the powers to be, so-called, uh, could try and do these things. What do they do instead? The tensions of the Cold War now between the West and between the, uh, Russia and China are only growing day by day by day, as I'm sure you um, are aware of. The production of more, even more and more sophisticated nuclear weapons is only increasing. But we know that even a so-called limited, in inverted commas, nuclear war, for example, between India and Pakistan, can result in the clouding in a so-called nuclear winter over very large parts of um, Asia and elsewhere, depends on the winds. And this is a real probability now. So what are they doing? Instead of trying to do everything that can be done, and certain things can be attempted to protect life on Earth, they are contributing to even greater um, danger. And now the danger, the most serious danger now are the climate and the nuclear. You don't see much, you don't read much about it in the media. I don't see much about it in the media. They keep on going about, on about what are really minor or trivial developments. In the major elections in the West, the issue of the protection of life on earth hardly features, hardly. That's why I'm not exactly optimistic, my friend. I'm not. Uh, maybe I'll end with a, a note about your your book, the the Event Horizon: Homo Prometheus and the Climate Catastrophe. You mentioned in Chapter Four the role of, that the mastery of fire had in both fueling the passions for mythology and helping in the preparation of meals and giving birth to the worship of gods. But it also planted the impulse to go to war and devastate the earth. I mean, Homo. Very few species other than the humans uh, control fire. If this was the key to our development of intellect and social organization and so forth, does it guarantee our demise? Is the end of the human species essentially written into this Promethean bargain? Well, Prometheus, um, and uh, which symbolizes the discovery of fire by humans more than a million years ago, is a key figure. It's the symbol for what is happening. Because even though these prehistoric humans never had a clue of, of what they're doing, by um, mastering fire, 
and magnifying their output of energy by humanity, Homo sapiens so-called, but doing that, they have, um, they have opened up the gates of hell. Originally, it was a perfectly innocent and necessary measure, but open fires of leading to a burning of forests and to combustion, combustion of coal, combustion of fuel, which uh, follow up combat, uh, follow up the discovery of fire. This is what we're looking at now. Uh, it started seriously in the 17th century. I mean, global warming and the greenhouse gas concentration started seriously in the 17th century. It was known in principle a long time before that, of course, but um, the Humanity has been warned uh, by scientists, uh, particularly since 1980 or so, that the rise in the carbon dioxide and temperatures is something that um, is going to endanger our survival. Now, I'm not saying humanity or the homo sapiens is going to disappear. It's very possible, in fact, I hope it's possible, that um, people living in the polar regions, but particularly in the Arctic or subarctic, will still be able to survive because temperatures in these regions uh, might still be um, allow people to uh, breathe and get the oxygen. So I'd say within the next few decades or so, people who want to survive will need to move north. The same as animals are now moving up the mountain slopes to escape the tropical heat. Now, what's happened after that? <laughs> That's a subject of science fiction, and it's well beyond me. In fact, the behavior of so-called homo sapiens, meaning the thinking man, is way beyond me. I would regard the behavior of civilizations in particular, since civilizations have risen, as a form of collective insanity. Uh, I'm not a medical doctor and not up to me to define insanity, but insanity leads to self-destruction. And uh, I fear that's what's happening. Personally, I'm glad I'm not uh, a teenager any longer. Thank you for the, the generosity of your time. Well, I apologize for um, commu communicating the evidence being so, um, sounding so desperate. I really apologize. But as a scientist, I feel it's my duty to do so. Unfortunately, not all scientists feel and think this way. We've been speaking with Earth and paleoclimate scientist Andrew Glickson. He's based in Canberra, Australia. Professor Glickson is also a contributor to a number of online magazines, including Global Research. He joined us from Canberra. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio stations CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. 
thank you once again for listening.